something I've heard many times over the years as a sort of supreme compliment regarding another person has been, I don't think I've ever heard them say a negative thing about anyone. And I've heard this inside the church, I mean among church folks, and I've also heard it out in, in outside in normal society. And I've heard things like you've heard, like she's really smart, he's a good athlete, great leader, talented, etc. But those are sort of second-tier compliments. Over and over, what's been held up as a kind of supreme compliment has been this idea of words used in regards to others. I don't think people are merely impressed with someone not saying judgmental things about another person. I think people intuitively know that words represent hearts, and they're impressed with the heart or the character of a person as revealed by what they say and don't say. And specifically, I think they're admitting indirectly when they hold this up as a sort of ideal, how hard it is and how rare it is to not speak ill against other people. It's also impressive because people understand intuitively, maybe they haven't thought about it, but it's not just some talent or gifting or personality trait. Well, they're just sort of wired to be nice and to say nice things about people. We'd like to believe that. It takes us off the hook. But you can't, you, so you can't, on the one hand, choose to exceed your God-given capacity. You can't decide to have certain abilities or traits that you lack. I could hack away at a piano uh, for time eternity. I'd never catch up with my wife in terms of skill. There, it's outside my design parameters. I could, however, if I wanted to, decide to become skilled at how I talk about others. That's my choice. We could, all of us, become people who stand out for the glory of God and the good of others in the use of our words. And in just two verses, James is going to circle back around to the topic of the tongue or words, which is a sort of shorthand for the person whose faith and life are cohesive. It's a clear and tangible evidence of faith aligning with deeds or not aligning. Let me read. Brothers and sisters, don't slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your brother? So James has taken us back to chapter 3, where he warned about the use of the tongue, and he said the tongue's like a spark that starts a forest fire. It's untamable. Yet, at the same time, we're responsible to leash our tongues to take thoughts and words captive to Christ. So then after he talked about the tongue in chapter 3, he warned about how what's in a person's heart comes out into the world of relationships. Now he circled back around to the tongue again. So clearly this was a big issue in the church he was addressing. And it was seen by James, rightly so, to be the root cause of many of the problems they were experiencing. So a small spark is barely noticeable, but you can trace the burning of entire forests, communities back to that barely noticeable beginning. And likewise, a word's a small thing, but over and over, there's sparks that burn down the lives of people and relationships. In his book, An Army at Dawn, Rick Atchison quotes Hitler's order in 1942 to his troops in North Africa. He said, North Africa must be held at all costs. And then that sentence, Atchison writes, says, condemned a million men from both sides to seven months of torment and thousands and thousands of lives lost. And that's an extreme example, but it's a good example. It gives weight to James's warning. Over and over in history, there have been words spoken or words written that have translated into widespread destruction. Words originate in the heart, have consequences in the real world. And I've seen 
recently how words thrown out into the air from uncareful, maybe even uncaring hearts have done lasting damage to lives and relationships. So slander here is the same word in the Greek that he uses later on when he says speaks against his brother. So the idea is speaking against. And if you, he's saying that this, these words are a manifestation of the pride in the human heart. And if you remember last week, we read that God opposes the proud but lifts up the humble. And that verse should give us pause. We can just motor through it. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. But say, wait a minute, you, you know what he's saying. You can get on the wrong side of God himself. Do you really want an almighty foe? Pride is just not going to turn out well for you. And the speaking against other people is a manifestation of being double-minded or double-souled, James writes. We're split in here. We haven't decided who the boss is consistently. And in James chapter 3, he asked rhetorically, can fresh water and salt water came from the same, come from the same well? And the answer is no. Then how can we use the same mouth to praise God and curse people? He said these words, these double words are coming from a double heart. And some might think that James is overplaying his hand here. That, come on, James, it's just words. Get over it. There are a lot more pressing problems in the world to deal with than words. And James would say, I don't think so. Those words, those problems in the world you're talking about, go back to words, go back to the heart. The words we use are symptomatic of a larger problem in the human heart. And words do great harm or they do great good. And James writes that when we speak against or judge our brothers and sisters, we're speaking against the word of God and then by implication against God himself. So here's how his argument goes. Don't speak against each other. When you do, you're speaking against God's word. When you do that, you're not keeping it but judging it. And when you judge God's word, you're judging God himself, who alone is the lawgiver and judge. So back up. Be careful. Who are you to judge your neighbor? So he'd just written that God gives grace to the humble and opposes the proud. And now he's giving this striking example of human pride. To presume to sit in judgment on God himself. And most of us say, I would never do that. And James would say, well, when you talk like that about your brother and sister, you're doing just that. You're, you're, you're speaking against God himself. So James's view is that faith in Christ is a reality that can be measured objectively by acts of obedience. We're not saved, like Rodney said, by acts of obedience, but we are saved to them or for them. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is a gift of God, not works, so no one can boast. And you've been saved for the good works that God prepared in advance for you to do, Ephesians 2.10. So we're not saved by works, we're saved for these works. And so there are some objective scientific tests to determine if something is real. Is that real gold? Let's test it. Is that pure sodium? Let's test it. James is like this faith scientist. He thinks that he believes that life is like the lab, that faith is tested out there to determine if it's real or not. And words for him are sort of a go-to test for authentic faith. But don't despair because he admitted earlier in his letter that no one can fully tame the tongue. The point is not perfection in our speech but Christ-like direction in our hearts, lives, it's going to show up in our speech. We ought to be getting better at this over time. And though we're not going to fully tame the tongue, if we love and follow God, then we're going to want to submit to his word, and we should be getting better at this the longer we go. And when we fail, we shouldn't blow it off and just say, that's just me being me. We should, like we talked about last week, mourn. We should be giving attention to our words we're going, to, oh, we're, going to, we're going to be working to obey God with them and repent when we fail to. So 
If you've been at this a while as a Christian, there ought to be progress. That's sanctification. There should be movement. Lack of movement is not normal. should not be normal. So we're going we're gonna to address the heart problems that's behind the use, the wrong use of words. If we're really serious about following God, we're going to pay attention to this. And then what's coming out is implicating our hearts. What I suspect was happening in the church James was writing to was that their tongues were completely off the leash. They weren't tethered to Christ. And in their harsh criticisms of one another, James is connecting the dots for them. Okay, here's what's causing all these battles between you. It's the battle within you. So you're, you're putting yourself on the wrong side of the ball from God himself. So before we go on, let me give a caveat. James is not prohibiting the necessary judgment that must be made regarding the words and actions and attitudes of people around us. You have to do that to, to live in the world and to follow God. You only have to go back one passage to read where he said, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? That's pretty direct judgment. He's not saying we should never make judgments regarding what's good and real and true and what's not. Jesus and Paul both said that the church must exclude from membership those who are living in, in flagrant public and ongoing disobedience to God's standards of faith and life. How could you possibly do that without making some sort of appropriate judgment? The difference is when people use God's word to judge things that people do and say and believe as being out of bounds, as out of bounds from how God's designed the world, versus when we sit in judgment on people. The goal, Paul wrote, is to restore people back to God. But when we condemn people with the aim to judge and to put ourselves above them, that's a whole different kind of judgment. One kind of judgment flows from love and faith, the desire to restore. The other flows from jealousy and envy and pride. So here's a couple examples, a few examples of the wrong kind of judgment. There's a lot more in Scripture, but this isn't in Scripture, but the idea is straw man ad hominem gossip and slander. Straw man is where a person's life or beliefs are inaccurately described. Then that false position, the straw man, is attacked and easily defeated. This is just a complete lack of integrity. It's not hard to beat a scarecrow in a fistfight or an argument. But it's wrong to intentionally misrepresent someone in order to defeat them and make your own position look stronger. This happens all the time. An example of the proper use of judgment would be to present a person's beliefs and actions in accurate ways, in ways that they would go, yeah, that's what I believe, or yeah, that's what I'm doing, and then respond with, well, here's how what you're doing, believing, becoming, doesn't align with the Word of God. Please turn from your sin. And that's the process that Jesus outlines in Matthew 18 in regards to here's how you deal with ongoing and public sin of others. Ad hominem is, comes from the, the phrase against the man or against the person is where a person, not their actions or belief, comes under attack. This is difficult because when, when you question a person's beliefs or behaviors, they often feel like they're under personal attack, but it's not the same thing. Our culture thinks it is, but it's not the same thing. If I say what you believe is not true according to God's word, I'm not saying you're bad and you're a liar. If I say that choice is sinful, it's not the same as saying you're terrible and I'm throwing you away. God, like any good father, will say to us, what you're thinking, believing, doing, becoming is wrong, and you're my child and I love you and you have to stop what you're doing. Gossip is telling the truth with evil intent or lacking good intent. So just because what you're saying about someone is true doesn't mean you should be saying it here or now at least. 
Is your goal to help or is there some other motive at play? That was probably going on at the church James was writing. And also there was slander going on. Clearly slander is different from gossip. Gossip is telling the truth with the intent to harm. And slander is just telling what's not true with the intent to harm. So James's strong warning is that we must be very careful to not presume to act as if we're God by sitting in judgment on his word, by wrongly sitting in judgment on others. So we need to watch our mouths. But we especially need to watch our hearts. Above all else, Proverbs says, guard your hearts. It is the wellspring of life. So what's coming out here, what's coming out here is coming out of here. Our words are like a check engine light. They can signal all is well or something's very wrong. Let's go to the next section, verse 13. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to this city or that, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. You don't even know what'll happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag, and all such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. So for James, certain words and certain attitudes about the future both reveal the same basic heart problem, a denial of God's ultimate authority in our lives. To quote Paul in his letter to Timothy, he wrote, Watch your life and your doctrine closely. And so how is speaking words and planning related to, the, related to this idea of doctrine? Doctrine is just a word for belief about God. What do we think is true and real about God? And James is describing how when we speak against others, we're not taking God seriously. When we arrogantly plan the future as if we have control over it, we're not taking God seriously. So what we actually believe about God, doctrine is showing up in our lives all the time and our words towards others, and how we view the control we have over the future, both reveal what we really actually think is true. So orthodoxy, which is correct ideas about God, needs to lead to orthopraxy, which is lies that align with the reality of God. And so James gives a hypothetical example to describe a heart problem. Someone says, today or tomorrow, I'm going to go to this or that city, and his point is not the example, but the underlying attitude. They decide where they're going to go, when they're going to go, how long they're going to stay, and they think they're determining the outcome. He's not critiquing planning. He's not critiquing making money. He's critiquing human arrogance that factors God out of the life. The problem is attitude, not action. You say, indicates in your hearts, you plan as if you're God, that you have control of the future. You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. If you don't have solid intel about tomorrow, how do you think you have operational control over it? Here's the kind of creature you are. You are a morning mist that will disappear at full sunrise. You're a, you're a puff of smoke. So James, once again, is tying his teaching to that of his Lord and his brother Jesus. Jesus talked about, gave a parable of a certain rich man whose ground produced a certain a good crop. And he said, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear my barns down, build bigger ones. I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. This is the classic case of the, of the person who works and works and retires and then dies the next day. Then who will get what you prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich towards God. So in the Lord's parable and in James's word, the problem was not in the actions. There's no problem with being a good business person. You need to figure out what you're going to do with this abundant harvest, you know, build bigger barns. There's no problem with wanting to go fishing and not work hard all the time. 
The problem was he factored God out of his life strategy, and this is foolish to the extreme. So wisdom in Scripture, if you read Proverbs, plans and prepares for the future. But wisdom never presumes on it. That's wrong. So we need to be careful here about turning James's words into a sort of speech formula and miss his whole point. Because you can read that where James says, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills. And so we go, okay, I got it. The application is, every time I talk about the future, I need to tack on God willing, God willing, God willing. And I got it. Not necessarily. Jesus and Paul didn't always make that comment when they spoke of the future. If you read the Gospels and Paul's letters, they didn't always tack on at the end of every comment about the future, God willing. It was assumed in their heart. James isn't given a speech formula, tack this on to every sentence about the future. He's giving a hard attitude. Instead of believing in your heart, I'm in control, it's about me. Believe in your heart, the Lord is in control and life is about him. If you look at verse 16, you can see the problem is actional, not attitudinal. The, the problem is, is, is about what's going on in a person's heart. As it is, you boast and brag, and all such boasting is evil. So he's not going after the planning. He's not saying, tack this on. He's saying, look at what's happening in your heart when you live that way. You make life about self and not God. The problem is the pride that puts us in opposition to God. Then, then verse 17 reveals that the heart is what he's after. Anyone who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. I tend to focus on my sins of commission. They're pretty obvious to me. You shouldn't have said that, shouldn't have thought that, shouldn't have done that. God forgive me. And James is focusing on sins of omission here. God forgive me for failing to do this. The problem for the hypothetical merchant was not in his planning, his enthusiasm, his profiting. It was in his failure to pay attention to his heart. Is Jesus Lord in here? He didn't guard his heart. We focus on what am I doing? When should I do it? But the heart is the why question. What's going on down there? What's the engine driving my actions? Is my heart surrendered to him or not? And we don't want to overthink this, but we don't want to underthink it either. So let's think about how to think about our hearts because that's the real issue here. And there's no better place to go for help with this than Jesus himself. And so in the garden, he's with his in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's with his disciples. He said, hey, he took his battle buddies into the garden. He knows what's coming. Pray with me. And then he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And then he, he fell to the ground face first and prayed, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. He went back and found his battle buddies sound asleep. Very disappointing. And then he prays a second time, My father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. This is a, a picture of, of a free heart. A heart that says yes to God, whatever the question is. Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Clearly he was in deep distress. He would have taken another way than the cross if it were possible to do that and accomplish his father's will. Twice he prayed on this terrible night, your will be done. So as we think about investigating our heart, we need to make sure that the goal of self-reflection is not to immobilize us. It's not to, do it, to become navel gazers, over-evaluate. The goal is, is to mobilize us. So you want to check your heart. If you journal whatever, 
the whole point is to energize you to move out into obedient, proactive love and engagement with other people. So Jesus very quickly and readily had a free heart. But as we read here, it wasn't easy. Ah, this, no problem. Cross, no problems. Separation from you, no problem. It was hard. But he moved through life with a surrendered heart. For me, having a free heart doesn't come easy or quickly. I wish it did, but it usually hasn't. So I need to keep checking myself. I've got to keep getting back on track. Every day I'm getting back on track. Not my will but yours. Not my will but yours. And I need to do this if I'm going to stay mobilized to honor God and love people. And it is this continual heart check and continual correction that can mobilize us to action. So here's, here's what a free heart for me is. If I can look in the mirror, close the door, I'm not trying to impress anybody. I'm not even trying to fool myself. And I can go, God, I want what you want. I don't necessarily like it, but I want what you want. That's a free heart. You say, okay, that doesn't sound that complicated. It's not that complicated. It's just really hard. At least it is for me. Because depending on the situation, it's taken me hours, days, weeks. And at one point, it took me two years to get a free heart on something. That's a long time. You say, Terry, you're messed up. Exactly. There's no, no question about that. And you may get a free heart more quickly than I do. I'm getting better as I get older. But I know my capacity for trusting God is going to be tested throughout my life in increasing fashion. So I've got to grow in this. I've got to pay attention to my heart every day. When things are pressing on me or when things are just sort of normal. I need to pay attention to words coming out of my mouth. They implicate my heart. And, the, and, and it if my heart is becoming more like Christ over time, it ought to be reflected in what's coming out of my mouth. I need to watch my attitude. Am I putting myself in the place of God? Not just in planning and preparing for the future, but have I gone from planning and preparing to presuming or maybe worrying? If you're planning for the future, it's pulling amps. You know, you've got so many amps. And you go, you go, over, your, you go over your amp load, you're going to throw a breaker. Planning pulls amps. Worrying pulls amps. Worrying is wasted amps. Presuming pulls amps. So why do I want to do that? Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. For him we were created. I want to live, I really do, in line with what's real. This is my father's world. I want to live like his son in it. And so I want to make sure that what's happening in here, what's happening out here aligns with the reality of the world as God has made it. The Bible tells us that the cosmos is an open system, and that just means that the physical universe is not all there is. God exists outside of space and time, and he interacts with it and directs it. And the technical way of saying this is the universe is a uniformity of cause and effect in an open system. That's a fancy way of saying normally things happen normally, and God can interact when he wants to. So I don't have to wonder. I wonder if I go outside and throw a rock if it's going to fall up or down. It's going to fall down. That's how God's designed the cosmos. Normally, things happen in line with how he's made the world. But he can, when he wants to, um, interact with the world. He can, when he wants to, have a virgin give birth and the incarnation happens. He can split a sea and let, an, let, a, let a bunch of people walk across it. What that means is, is whether it's in the unusual where God intervenes and does something different than normally how things happen or just... The normal, which is going to be 99.99% of the time, God's involved in all of it. 
And our very words, our actions, our planning, our thinking about the future, our dealing with sorrow and loss, we have to honor Christ, crown him Lord. Good doctrine, truth about God, shows up in normal day-to-day activities and attitudes in the way we talk about others, in the way we think about our lives and our future. Then ultimately, and this is James is really his pastoral point, ultimately it shows up in the outcomes of our relationships. What's in here shows up in our our attitudes and actions out here, and that shows up in the outcomes of relationships. As we truly believe what's real about God in our hearts, relationships are going to become sweeter. Now, another caveat, Paul wrote that as far as possible, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. He knows that you can't make someone have a relationship with you. But he's talking to the church, he's talking to Christians, saying, if you will watch your heart and it's being transformed, and if you do the same thing, it's going to lead to, to growing sweetness in relationships. Paul, James was a pastor. He wanted the church to grow in love and relationship in a way that resembled the beauty of the gospel in their hearts showing up in their lives together. And I've seen this happen. I see it all the time. And it's a beauty to behold. It's a wonder to behold. I've just been moved recently watching the beauty of what's happening in people's hearts, the gospel in people's hearts, changing how they interact with one another. I've seen, the, I've seen the reverse is true, and it's terrible and tragic. doesn't have to be. So God is all for beauty between us. It starts with beauty within us, the beauty of the gospel. It remains for us to be all for it as well. And so James is telling the church then and us, surrender your double heart, your double soul, for a single one. Trade it in. Keep, keep, keep crowning Jesus Lord of your heart. And keep monitoring it, keeping watch over it. And let what's happening out here, uh, let it implicate your heart. I'm not just going to accept this. This is wrong. So I'm going to go back here and say, what's going on in here? Oh, my heart's not free. It needs to get free again. And as we experience God in our hearts, we're positioned to experience him in our relationships. That was his driving motivation, that the church reflect the beauty of the gospel. This isn't some far-fetched, unrealistic vision. This is something God is offering to us, and we have to take it to heart. None of this can be microwave, though. This is a lifetime of movement towards God and others. And it's something we'll experience in fullness then, but we can experience it in reality now. Let's pray together. I'm going to give you a couple of minutes before the, the team leads us in some more worship to reflect. Do you, do you need to repent of words you've spoken? Then do it. And if you, if you need to go ask someone to forgive you, then when you have chance, do that. Do you need to repent of having not guarded your heart, not watched your heart? Then do that. And then be free. Leave, leave this room forgiven, mobilized to love God and people.